I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to series three of All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamanna. In this season, I'm going to be speaking with nine remarkable humans who are creating change for both people and planet. For the next nine weeks, my hope is that these conversations might form a small part of your routine, keeping you company in this confusing and daunting moment in time that we're living in. To help ground these conversations, I'll be asking my guests about their routines and rituals and the seemingly insignificant moments as a way to help remind us to pay closer attention to the present moment and cherish all the small things. If you're new here, please do be sure to hit the subscribe button as I would so love to have you back each and every week. Right then, let's kickstart this season. Arja Barber is a writer, stylist and consultant whose work deals with the intersections of sustainability and the fashion landscape, building heavily on ideas behind privilege, wealth inequality, racism, feminism and colonialism. Her brand new debut book, Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism, is a blazing polemic against both the exploitation and injustice of the fashion industry and the cynical manipulation of consumer culture as a whole. It's divided into one learning section and one unlearning section, so by the end you'll understand why fashion is so exploitative, how it's causing a humanitarian crisis and contributing to climate breakdown, and you'll feel equipped to be a better consumer and fundamentally a more active citizen. To paraphrase Aja at the end of this episode, if we feel a little bit more empowered in one space in our lives, this will extend to other spaces and we can go on to do amazing things. I really hope you love this episode and please be sure to hit the show notes to order Aja's unmissable book. Right, let's get into it. So let us start as we always do. I always start this show thinking a little bit about rituals and routines and specifically morning routines. And I love how in your book, you actually write about how rituals and habits and shifting habits can really shape us. So I was wondering if you have any kind of morning routine or any rituals you like to do first thing that have really shaped you. Well, first of all, thank you for that lovely intro. It's so kind of you to say. And this is where I get really like hippie woo woo. I don't think that I come across as very woo on Instagram, but I am incredibly woo. Basically, every morning when I wake up and I remember, I ground myself. So I do a little check-in in in bed and I think, who am I? What am I here for? I am on planet Earth. I am one of 8 billion humans. I am a daughter, a friend, an aunt. You know, so I ground myself and I sort of do a, a visual zoom out of like how I am a part of this collective and what do I want to contribute? You know, I do that. And then I do a little child's pose to stretch my back as well. I used to do that with my dog, Pipey. We'd always do like downward dogs together in the morning. I miss her. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I wonder if Olive and Juno are, are doing those downward dogs with you. Well, you know what? They both are very puppy-like sometimes. Juno, generally, if she's not preoccupied doing something she's not supposed to be doing, she'll come in and greet me in the morning. And she is a sweet greeter. She's really like, wake up, wake up. You know, I'm just going to sit on top of you and purr. And it's, it's a really lovely way to wake up. Love that. I always like to give my listeners a grounding of my guests a little bit about where they grew up. So could you talk to us a little bit about growing up in Virginia and your family and some of your earliest childhood memories? Yeah, so I'm from Reston, Virginia, which is the northern part of Virginia. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. I always tell Londoners it's like a zone six of D.C. And I had a childhood that was really idyllic in some ways, but also I didn't like being a kid. You know, it's a predominantly white area and I'm black. And so that experience was interesting to say the least. And I also am a bit of a wallflower, like that woo-woo bit that I just talked you through. I've I've always been like this, which (laughs) makes her a weirdo at age 10, you know? (laughs) And so I had all the privileges of growing up in a very affluent area, but I didn't have a lot of friends. And in some ways, it made me really strong in my convictions and I think made me become even more of myself because you know what? People are going to judge you no matter what, so you may as well do what you want. And so I, Northern Virginia is a great place to grow up. I didn't like my childhood, but it is very outdoorsy, very scenic. Reston has lots of green spaces. My parents live near a lake, which is really beautiful. You know, I was just that hippie woo-woo kid who liked to listen to like Enya. And I liked fashion first as a place of wanting to fit in through material items. And then I got very interested in fashion separate of that whole material need. And that grew like a really genuine interest in certain designers, particularly like the scene in London, because London in the 90s, it was making a name for itself as a fashion capital. You have a you have a really interesting relationship with London because you actually ended up moving to London in order to work with a fashion brand, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I did a placement in my third year of university, which would make me a junior. My school had like this work abroad program and I've always been a mediocre student. I'm not a test taker. The barbers are not test takers. If you give us all standardized tests, we'll all run around in circles and cry. And so I was the type of person where I was looking for any opportunity to boost my GPA that didn't involve actual school. So when I saw that there was like, you could work abroad in the UK and get school credit for it, I was like, excellent. And so originally it was the school would find you an internship, but I was like, I'm not going to let you people ruin this for me because I knew I would have gotten stuck working in some government office, something I had no interest in whatsoever. And so I basically was like, I'm going to find my own internship. And they were like, okay. So I had bought a skirt from the streetwear brand in East London. And it was, it was the first purchase I had made from overseas. I was a very early adopter to online shopping in my family. My mother kept saying, somebody's going to steal your credit card. Obviously that has happened, but you know, it didn't happen then. Um, (laughs) And so I had bought this amazing skirt from this brand and I had become 
oh, I watch everything they do. I think they seem really cool. So I just randomly sent an email and they wrote back like the very next day and were like, come on, we'll take you on. I was also very lucky because I got to travel overseas and I had met some British teens while I was traveling and a few of those families lived in London. So it kind of just was like, okay, you've already got a small social circle there. You don't have to learn another language. And this company seems really cool. And the scene at the time, Alexander McQueen and Kate Moss, you know, I was very into Vivian Westwood. It just seemed like London was where I needed to be at that time. And then the music as well. I was super into like electronic music in trip hop, which did not have a big following in the US. And so decision was made. Everything said, this is where you're going. And then obviously it came full circle because you now live in London full time. We're so grateful to have your voice as part of the So Fashion Movement here with us in the UK as such a kind of trailblazer for us. That's a kind thing to say. I'm happy to be back. You were about to release your debut book, Consumed, the need for collective change, colonialism, climate change, and consumerism. So much alliteration. I love Arja. This book is so fantastic. I'm so proud of you, honestly. Thank you. I'm just so grateful for it. I feel like it's the book that we really, really need. And I know no one's going to be able to describe it better than you. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect from this book? Well, first of all, I have to say the alliterations changed multiple times during the writing of the book. So I'm still like, yeah, I think that's the order. That's the order because it was like, does this roll off the tongue? Okay, let's switch these two words. So like whenever someone does the whole thing, I'm like, well done you. I'm still committing the current alliteration subtitle to my brain. So the book itself is... A small memoir, but it's a memoir and a nonfiction where I talk about my life and how I began to understand how all of these systems work. And I will never, ever, ever not hold my hand up and be like, I'm superior and I know more than anyone else. No, I was literally buying fast fashion, but feeling slightly icky about it. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I was telling myself, no, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to buy this clothing. But then also feeling like, I don't feel comfortable with the amount of clothing that I buy. I don't feel comfortable. And I'm really suspicious of these prices, but everyone's saying it's fine. So like, why am I suspicious of these prices? And as I began to understand all these systems of oppression, racism and colonialism and, and intersectional feminism, I was talking about all these issues separate. And when I began to apply them to the fashion industry and put together the pieces of why I started to be like, yeah, I think I I don't like fast fashion. All of a sudden it all made sense. It was just like, oh, so from start to finish, this is a system that kind of shits on non-white people. If we think about where the products are being made and whose resources are being taken to make those products, it's non-white people. If we think about the end of the life cycle of our garments, you know, if they end up in a dump in North America, there's a high chance that that dump will either be in a brown or black neighborhood or a poor white neighborhood. And so if it ends up there, we're already looking at like some structural inequalities. But if it ends up in the global South, once again, it is in a country 
where non-white people live and it is now their mess to dispose of. And as an American, all of this was kind of mind-blowing to me. If we look at it individually, like Americans would be so mad if another country was like, we're going to send you all this stuff and then your government has to dispose of it. But that's Mm -hmm. what's happening, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there was no turning point where it was just like Eureka. It was a series of stories and volunteering in a charity shop and seeing endless piles of clothing just piled to the ceiling and realizing that like there's thousands of charity shops in North America. We are not that unique. That means that this has to be an ecological crisis. If everybody is doing the same thing, there's no other way that there isn't a mountain the size of one of the Blue Ridges of clothing. A gift that I have is foresight. I'm very good at sort of looking off into the distance and being like, I can see where this is going. I feel this. And I think the book is accumulation of all of those stories of how I put these pieces together. And then it's also like, right, so how do we get out of this mess? And there's no one answer. I think a lot of people love to be like, this is the only way we're going to do it. But I think for me, the, the solution is a lot of people doing what they can at their intersection. So I try and sort of remind people of that. There's going to be the person that's like, I'm never buying fast fashion again. That's great. That's your intersection. There's going to be the person that says, okay, I have to buy fast fashion because that is truly what I can afford. But what I can do is try and mend things, try and reinforce things, try and make them last a bit longer. That's what that person's going to do. There's going to be the person that says, I'm going to buy secondhand and I'm going to limit the amount of items that come into my wardrobe. That's something everyone can do. Regardless of where your price point is at, you can literally say, okay, this year I'm only buying 30 items of clothing, so they need to be good and they need to be versatile. We've never solved this problem before because we've never come across it. So let's try and think big, but let's try and think about this system for what it is and do what we can to extricate ourselves from it and talk to our friends about it and our family. I love how you ask your readership and your followers to really interrogate and question their choices. And something that I have found so unbelievably helpful is thinking about your intersection and where you're coming to this from. That is really helpful, not only in helping us all figure out as individuals what our skills are, where our power is, and how much impact we can have on an individual basis, which will hopefully add up to a collective. It's also been very helpful for me in my frustrations with the industry when I see certain folks take big paychecks, take ambassadorship roles with certain brands. And your community are really clued up on this Mm -hmm. because you've spoken about it so well. When we're coming at these issues and we're criticizing people, we really have to think about that intersection. And something that came up last week was Molly May Haig, who if Mm -hmm. no one's familiar, she's one of the most powerful UK influencers. She is white, she's able-bodied, she's cis, she has a lot of privilege, she's incredibly financially stable. She recently took a position with Pretty Little Thing, who are owned by Boohoo as their creative director. For me, this really felt like a Black Mirror moment. It felt like, as I've heard you say and many others, fast fashion is really eating itself. Yeah. So I know you write about this in the book and you recently tweeted about choice feminism as well. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to, to dive into this issue. What is the problem with very, very privileged, financially very fortunate people taking up these roles and what harm is that doing to both people and planet? 
first I want to say choice feminism for anyone that's listening is the idea that anytime someone who is a woman makes a, a choice and we just call whatever choice they make feminism because they're a woman. We go, it's anti-feminist of you to critique them. Women supporting women. A woman can be like, yeah, I'm going to make a decision that impacts and hurts thousands of women. And some people will be like, hashtag girl boss. And I'm like, no. The problem with this whole thing is that pretty little thing makes clothing that is so exploitatively cheap. And they're paying someone who is young and I would argue probably not the best person for the job. I mean, she knows how to sell clothing, which is probably a part of the job. But let's be honest, there are people that take out six-figure loans to go to fashion school that will never get that role. So that's the first thing. Like, literally, the fashion industry creates pipelines where only privileged people can play. So everyone says, oh, you know, if you do the work and you do the right thing, go to school, do this and that, you'll be rewarded. That's just not true when we have a society that's like, oh, you've got a lot of Instagram follows, come and have this position. But the other thing that's problematic about it, well, that's never going to happen to a non-white person. For the Like, I, it's never going to happen. Like, that is white privilege that she just sort of waltzed into that. And the other thing that's really problematic about it is that when asked about sustainable fashion and whatnot, Molly May plays the fool and she's not a fool. Like she is very intelligent and a good businesswoman. And so when she says things like, well, I don't understand how this became normal to begin with when asked about the nature of throwaway fashion, she's really kind of doing a gaslight move because this is someone who has 2 million or 6 million followers. I don't know how many. 6 million. And rarely repeats outfits on social media. One thing people really have to understand is that in my lifetime, I've seen fast fashion come into full fruition as it exists today. That was not the way we always shopped. I've seen this happen. And social media has played an impactful part in the rise of fast fashion. If you look at the linear path and you look at the years and the dates, the speeding up of us buying directly correlates with the popularity of social media. And so this is someone whose existence is never wearing the same thing twice, basically going, I don't know how that became normal. Let's be honest, nobody is giving you this contract to rewear your clothing on your grid. Mm -hmm. It's dishonesty is what it is. It's this thing where someone with her amount of privilege does not want to be associated with the problem from which she earns a very big income. I find it really, really interesting as well because she is now in a position where she could afford to only shop sustainably, to only shop ethically. She vlogs a lot about how much stuff she has and how uncomfortable she is with all this stuff. Yes. She could literally rewear her wardrobe for her entire life. But it's interesting because yes. this thing that you're talking about of playing the fool, mm-hmm. I feel like it's everyone in fast fashion they play dumb the ceos oh the ceos play the fool big time it's a page out of the fossil fuel industries book who for those that don't know the fossil fuel industry actually invented greenwashing and here's a fact that the average person still does not understand polyester is made from plastic it's made from fossil fuel and 60% of the garments that exist on earth 60% of the fabric is plastic And so 
all of these things are so linked to environmental and racial justice. But there's a lot of willful playing the fool. There's a lot of people wanting to separate themselves from these problems while not acknowledging that that's how they made their fortune. Everybody wants to like care about the environment now because hello, the planet's on fire. But nobody wants to hold their hand up and be like, yeah, hey, on average, I probably sold 6 million items of clothing within my lifetime, which means that I am actually a huge part of this problem. Obviously, influencers are one thing. Let's first come from the CEOs. But any person with that big of a following that pushes fast fashion that goes, oh, well, I care about sustainability. It's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Like, you don't. What would be your response to a celebrity or an influencer who takes these roles, takes these paychecks, takes these positions and says, let me try, let me just try and change things from the inside. Give me a chance. If I'm in the office with the CEOs, if I'm in the building, can they change things or is that just white saviorism in action? It's white saviorism in action because until the CEOs want to change the entire way their business operates, they're not hiring you to do that position. They're hiring you to be a face and because you're popular and because people want to buy things that you wear. They're not going to say, oh, you know what? We're just not going to sell new clothing every single day. Thank you for telling us that. They're going to have to make that decision on their own with their investors, with their board, but that's not going to come from somebody being like, I've taken this position, I'm going to make meaningful change. It's not going to come that way. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's talk about fashion and affordability, because this is something that you always speak about so well and you write about it so brilliantly as well. One of the things that comes up the most is when people say, what about the people who can only afford X? 
X, like insert any fast fashion brand here. Mm-hmm. Um, stop pointing fingers at them. And and I get this a lot and I'm and I'm sure you have in the past. It's infuriating, isn't it? And I think everyone in the slow fashion movement is like, actually no one's talking about these people. We know they're not to blame in this situation. So why do you think this defense comes up so much? And do you think it is perhaps a way of people just justifying their shoddy consumption when they know they can do better? I think it's exactly that. Consumerism is the culture in which we are born into. Our identities feel like they are tied to consumerism. And I know this because when I started to be like, I really don't want to buy fast fashion anymore. I literally felt like, who will I be if I'm not a part of this system in this way? I thought that. And so I know when people are protecting something that they want to continue to enjoy without me ruining it. But I always sort of hit them with the hard facts and go, you know, you do know the average garment worker can't afford to buy the clothing that they make. Uh, You do know that 50% of the world lives on $5.50 a day, which means that that 50% is arguably the poorest part of our planet. And they're not actually buying fast fashion because they really can't afford to. And then I hit them with, you know, the really nitty gritty facts. So in America, one of the things that I reference in the book is the resource generation, and they break down class and wealth and get us really thinking about these topics. It's amazing. It's really good. You should check them out. And they have a a class qualifier list, and they talk about the different class groups in America, poor, working poor, and working class people account for three to four percent of America's total wealth. Wow. The other 96 percent of that wealth is distributed among the middle class, which is still a tiny portion, the upper class, the managerial ruling class, you know. So when you think about how little money poor people have, but then when you think about the fact that name me one of these stores that you and I can't stand, and there's a billionaire at the top of them, those funds didn't make that billionaire to stop defending a system that you just want to participate in. I I have known people at every income, even within my own family, and people that are really financially insecure don't want to buy shit clothing either. That's the thing. We have to change the game so that everyone can buy better quality clothing that they can feel good about, you know? And I, I think about also like my mother, she's been a thrift and charity shopper since I was a kid. And it was not cool when I was a kid. And a lot of my clothing was thrifted. And my mother definitely came from humble means, like her childhood, they, they did not have a lot of privilege and they did not have a lot of wealth. And she has eight brothers and sisters and a single parent. It was hard my mother always thought fast fashion was trash. (laughs) She used to say to me, why are you buying that crap clothing? Because she would rather go to a charity shop and get a next to new Patagonia jacket and feel really excited about this $5 purchase that she got. My mom wasn't like, oh yeah, let's order from Shein. She was actually shaming me for participating. And you know, it's so annoying how right she was. So like, let's stop blaming poor people for problems that literally privileged people not only participate in, but completely perpetuate. Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, so much that we can collectively learn from our mums and our parents. That generation's just relationship to not just clothing, but stuff and how they, you know, every time I see my parents, they're always like fixing something or playing around with something that that generation are just 
you know, more resourceful. Disposable fashion totally came in with us and it's up to us to change that. We know that the fashion industry, the majority of it is like the game is the game is rigged yeah the game is rigged and i'm sure you get asked this all the time what's your advice to fashion graduates or people who are really wanting to get into the industry is it just don't do it i really want to be like inspiring but i think the current iteration of what we're dealing with within the fashion industry the majority of it needs to burn to the ground i feel like we're propping up castles made of dung and saying that it's like amazing there are some cool brands doing some cool things but I think this idea that you're going to change this goliath of a company that seems very invested in not doing the right thing is false I think you need to be realistic if you're okay with looking the other way on some stuff that makes your stomach turn factories where people make 37 cents for every garment that they churn out then yeah you can do it but for a lot of people You think you're going to change the way it works, but I don't think that you alone have the ability to do that. So the best thing you can do is try and work for a company that you know has integrity and do the good work there. Because I think the only way that the bad companies change is A, if no one wants to work for them, and B, if those of us who are citizens really take our money and put it in different directions. Definitely. But also it's hard because there are people where a job is a job and you've got to pay the bills. And so it's a tough one. I don't think I have the answer to that one because it's not that clear. And my path to where I am today was not straight at all. I've always joked that no one let me in the door to have a seat at the table. I had to climb the tree next door and shimmy over the branch and let myself in the upstairs window. That was my path, you know? So I don't want to be discouraging, but. I I think there became a point where I looked at the current fashion system and said, I don't want any parts of that. And I think people need to be realistic about what we can change with the current ways in which businesses are operating. I'm really grateful for that answer because of the gray area in it and also how you admitted not necessarily knowing the right answer. And I always find that really, really refreshing. So thank you. Oh, there's no right answer to like so many of these things. That's the thing. Everybody's like, oh, we just need to do this. But like, have we ever faced climate emergency before? No. Have we ever faced a fast fashion system that's like just ruining the planet and hurting people. No, I think there's multiple answers. And I I don't ever want to pretend like I have all the answers. Wise people never do that. Now, a lot of people seem worried that thrifting has been gentrified with folks kind of starting up businesses on places like Depop, buying stock and then reselling it for a higher price. What's your opinion on this? Because you do write about it in the book. And I think you have some brilliant things to say about it. So my answer in the book is actually not as concise as my answer today, to be honest. But basically, thrifting's always been gentrified, always. The global north always skims the cream off the top and sends the crap down south. And so you're just a part of this microcosm, but that's always been the business. Ultimately, we have so much clothing on this planet that we could probably dress every human like seven times over. That person starting that business is not impacting you. I would argue the reason your thrift store feels really crappy now is because of fast fashion. And I've seen that as someone who lived in London in 2003 and was like, 
oh my God, I love thrifting in London. Now I go in and half the store seems like it'll go up if you light a match because it's all polyester and it's all fast fashion. And so I think once again, we have to look at like the quality of clothing that's being churned out and apply that to the situation instead of getting mad at the person who's got a little side hustle selling on Depop. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like every time I go into a secondhand shop in London now, it's just Zara, 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 pretty little thing, Zara. Always. And someone was telling me recently that their store has a pretty little thing section. That's how abundant it is. And I asked them if they would take a picture and send it to me because I I think that would be really interesting. But yeah, your thrift store doesn't suck because of Depop. It sucks because fast fashion sucks. Mic drop. When big fashion brands do everything in their power to greenwash us with their latest recycled range campaign marketing ploy, whatever it is, how do you stay motivated? Because sometimes it can feel like we're up against a vast machine that is so so powerful how do you stay positive and motivated to keep doing the work that you're doing I think about the wins that we've had in the past think about when fashion revs transparency index report came out and a certain brand decided to hashtag themselves as the most transparent brand in the world which is ridiculous first of all The transparency index only includes brands that make, I think, over $400 million in sales a year, which means that all those little brands that are so transparent that they could give you a write-up of why their company is superior to any brand on that list aren't actually included. They don't make enough money to be included in that way. And so we have this big brand going, we're the most transparent brand in the world, which is patently untrue. And then they also hashtagged it sustainability, which we all know transparency has nothing to do with sustainability. So that was them doing something that they would have gotten away with like five years ago. But because there was such an outcry from the general public, they were forced to apologize. Not only were they forced to apologize, but fashion revs said, we don't really appreciate the way this brand is misleading the general public. And so when people are really down on like internet stuff and going, oh, you're a keyboard warrior, they're just crapping on something they don't understand and they're unwilling to participate in. But people speaking up causes multinational billion dollar companies to apologize. Now, of course, they apologized and made it seem like it was a simple mistake, not like their social media posts probably don't get signed off by 20 different people before they go up, you know, like, oh, we made a boo-boo. It's like, oh, did you now? Really? This wasn't like something that you deceitfully did on purpose? Okay. But they still had to apologize for it. That's a win. Take the wins and reflect on them in the times when you feel downtrodden. I love that. I love that. And it backs up exactly. It's not just us saying this. It's also what Garment Work Unions are saying. It's what organizers are saying. They back this up. They say brands really care about their their image. Call them out. Hold them accountable. The podcast that you were involved in, Remember Who Made Them, Ananya Bhattacharji said that. And she's also featured in my book. And it's true. It's very easy to feel defeatist right now. It's very easy to look at the news and go, Ah, uh, who cares? You know, like there's nothing I can do about it, but it's not true. If there's enough outcry, a brand is very fearful of their public image. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you can participate in. And it only takes a little bit of time out of your day. 
I would love to know what a truly sustainable fashion future looks like to you. And I would also like to ask, what will you be wearing to the fashion revolution? Well, what will I be wearing to the fashion revolution? Clearly something I already own. I won't go out and get a new outfit for it. (laughs) A truly sustainable fashion future to me looks like a resurgence of mending things. It looks like no longer having a high street, which is dotted with the same five brands. It looks like brands who we know are doing things, getting more and more powerful, opening shops, giving competition. And the average consumer who might have a little bit more power with their money, the average citizen, I should say, looks at the old store and goes, well, I used to shop there, but I think I might go in here and just have a nose about And that store that is doing things the right way is situated on the high street. They're fighting for the same space and you're giving citizens more choices. But also you have like a place where someone can take their jacket or trousers to be mended, which is also on that street. It looks like a little of everything. Obviously, the big brands aren't going to all go out of business next year, but I'd like to see some of these Goliaths disbanded and I'd like to see them be given a run for their money by smaller brands, but these smaller brands can't do it if people don't support them. Absolutely. Aja, how would you feel about a quick fire round? Yeah, bring it on. Quick fire with Aja. Wake up early or have a lion? Lion any day. Tea or coffee? Oh, it depends. If I'm really, really tired, I need a coffee, but most days tea. Lucky Charms or Cinnamon Crunch? Oh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch all the way. Tough one. Cats or dogs? Oh, you're asking a mother to pick her favorite child. So here's the thing. I've always been a dog person all my life, but these little cat bastards have found a way into my life. They've warmed their way into my heart. Can I do Olive or Juno or is that just... Oh, that is... that is Okay, I'll be honest. Some days I look at Olive and say, thank God I love you because I give you away. <laughs> she is such a handful. Juno is the cat that is definitely more chill, but you can't hate a cat with personality who's just going to do what she wants to get what she wants. Twitter or Instagram? (sighs) Neither. I mean, let me, I I like Instagram. Don't get me wrong. People that follow me, you're awesome. Community, you're great. But, you know, social media is just a lot. And Twitter is the place where people go to be ornery. So I don't spend too much time there. So I guess I have to say Instagram. Coats or knitwear? knitwear clubs or festivals it was clubs when i was 18 but festivals now fiction or non-fiction um fiction actually i love fiction i don't get to read enough of it podcasts or netflix podcast sunrise or sunset well i'm not an early riser but i do enjoy a sunrise if i ever manage to do it so i have to say sunset And finally, routine or spontaneity? There's something to be said about both, but routines are good for us. That was Quickfire with Aja. Final few questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit or ritual? A little bit of reading a book before bed. Love that. And is there anything that you have read, listened to, or watched recently that you would love to recommend? (laughs) Is it it chancy to recommend your own book? (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
Oh, Let's God. do it. That Guys, the, the, link, the link to buy is in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> order a few copies. Give them to your friends. Give them to your families. You can buy them at any local good bookstore. Look, here's the thing. You got a friend. And you really like this friend, but you're really uncomfortable with the fact that she's like, let's go shopping. Look at all this stuff I bought. Get her the book for Christmas. You don't even have to, because these conversations are hard. I get it. So much of friendship depends on saying things in the right way. So just get that for your friend, slide it in their direction and be like, have a little read about this. And then you can discuss it with them and, you know, they won't shoot the messenger. Beautiful. And finally, what is one thing that you hope your future self will have achieved? Happiness. I just want to be happy, but no, actually, let me rephrase that. Happiness is obviously given. If I can manage to get hundreds of thousands of people to think about the way in which they consume fashion and to make pledges to just change things up a bit, I will be a happy person. I will have done some of what I think that I was put on this earth to do. You're already doing it. I'm so proud of you and very grateful for you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I really think people think that fashion is frivolous and silly, but in actuality, this world has so much impact. Problem is we don't feel very empowered. And I think that has to do with consumerism. And so I like to think that if we can feel just a little bit more empowered in one space in our life, we can go on to do amazing things. Yay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to share it with a friend or perhaps share it on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia Lamana and tagging at ATST Podcast. It's a really, really helpful way of getting the word of the podcast out there. And if you have a moment, if you could leave it five stars on iTunes, I would be super grateful. Until next week, I hope you have a beautiful day and I'll see you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.